Welcome back to the program. If we're to listen to many of the Cassandras out there today, you would think that technology, information, and progress were all bad. They're the same people who would have objected to the printing press, the telephone, television, and the automobile. They look at education and don't understand why memorization and rote learning is no longer worthy of attention. And they want to put the technology genie back in the bottle. Well, it's not going back. In fact, much of what we have wrought as a society and as a civilization has made us better, smarter, and awakened whole new aspects of human potential. That's the premise of Clive Thompson's book, Smarter Than You Think. Clive Thompson is a contributing writer for the New York Times Magazine and Wired, and it is my pleasure to welcome him back to this program to talk about Smarter Than You Think, how technology is changing our minds for the better. Clive, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be back. Great to have you here. I suppose that all we have to really understand at the core of this debate is that even Socrates thought the text was somehow going to make us less smart and less knowledgeable. This argument's been going on a long time. Yeah, in fact, this, this is really, you've nailed it. This is the beginning of our modern concern that media is going to, um, media and communication tools are going to deform and degrade uh, the quality of our thought, because what Socrates, uh, uh, the argument he laid out in, in, in the Phaedrus, which is a great little dialogue, is that when he was arguing that when writing, as writing was coming along, and it was around the time that he, um, the, that he wrote that, um, if you could write things down, why would you ever bother to remember anything? And if you didn't remember it, how could it be considered to be knowledge and wisdom if it wasn't inside your head. Um, he was also worried that writing was going to kill off the tradition of argument, right? You know, you know, if, I wrote, if I write a book, you sit there and you read my book, but if you, if you want to complain about it or talk back to it, the book cannot speak back to you. So, you know, when you look at this, you know, two things. You think, well, on the one hand, you know, he was naive because, uh, um, because uh, you know, what he could not understand was that when we developed writing, we changed our relationship to information. Instead of having everything in our heads, we were able to consult a wider array of, of information than ever before. You could have a library with tons of books, more than you could ever remember, but you could reconsult them. You could think, oh, what was, what was that thing about you know, the Civil War? Let me go find that. Ah, here it is. And this helps us um, think, you know, uh, broader and more complicated thoughts than ever before. So he, he completely missed the boat on that. But, you know, there is this extent to which he was right. Uh, um, the, the ancient arts of memorization faded as writing came along. So we definitely lost something. I mean, you know, we're, we're not walking around reciting the Iliad and the Odyssey anymore from memory. Um, but, but the compensations uh, that came from being able to consult a library of information, um, uh, you know, handily outpaced what we lost from, from not being able to recite massive amounts of poetry. And, and it's interesting, the progression of this, because as we came to revere as a society, we came to revere and appreciate libraries. Now the idea that the library is essentially in our smartphone is something that terrifies us. It, it is simply yeah. changing the landscape, but the underpinnings of information and knowledge are still the same. 
They, they absolutely are. And, and, the, and the intelligent person always faces the challenge of learning how to use these new environments, um, these new intellectual tools in the most productive way. Um, because, you know, they're not, they're not natural. Like, you know, you have to figure out, so how does this work? Uh, what's it good for? What's it bad for? And even, and it's funny you mentioned libraries, because libraries went through a very similar sort of a, uh, um, a, a, an evolution. You know, in, in the very early days of, of public libraries, uh, there was no Dewey Decimal System. So when the librarian acquired books, he or she just put them on the shelf in the order that they arrived. And this was a complete mess. So the only person who could find the book was a librarian. And, and the librarian's entire job was nothing more than finding where the heck the book was. I came up and I said, yeah, I want a copy of you know, this novel. And then they had to go and find it and bring it back to me. And that was, that was all they did. And it, it was actually so slow that there was, you'd get these huge lineups spilling outside the library because the librarian was having trouble finding the books. And so, <laughs> so Melville Dewey comes along and he goes, this is madness. We need to automate this. Let's think of a system that allows the average person to walk into the library and get the book they want without even talking to the librarian. He invents, he organizes the books into the, into the decimal system, the Dewey decimal system. This is fabulous. This transforms the average person's ability to use a library because now you can walk in and get it all by yourself. Um, and what happened was that librarians suddenly had to figure out a new job for themselves because they were made obsolete. They, were, they weren't necessary to go and grab the books. So they, so they had to think, well, what's our new job? Well, their new job became helping people figure out what books to get in the first place. They became the sort of intellectual midwives of the people that used libraries. And this is a really great paradigm for all the things that are happening once again. Librarians are realizing, well, you know, I don't necessarily need to have a trillion uh, journals and articles here because that stuff is available online and there's even crazier resources like blogs. So they have to change and morph what they do because they're, they have newly empowered users. Just as the, the, the users of the 19th century had this new power to walk into the library and find a book by themselves, walk, blow right past the librarian, um, now, they, now librarians are trying to figure out, so how... how are they going to become intellectual midwives to thinking online? And, and, and we, 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 we see this, this struggle to, um, to grasp these new powers and harness them in the best way over and over again. But rather than, unfortunately, rather than thinking about how these new powers are going to constructively change our habits of mind, and clearly they will, we seem to spend an inordinate amount of time fighting against these forces that are in many ways <laughs> inevitable. Yeah, I mean, like, the thing is, the, the truth is, I mean, you know, I guess the positive way to say it is that human beings are innately conservative, um, and, 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 and some of this is very salutary, you know, like, they're conservative in that they, when something new comes along, they, they want to make sure, they feel comfortable with what they already know, um, and, they, and they don't want to upset the apple cart. And some of this conservatism is bad because it limits interesting new things from happening, useful new things from happening. Um, you know, when, when Samuel Moores was trying to lay his double-twist wire around, around France so that people could communicate across great distances, he, had, he spent a huge amount of time fighting the entrenched interests of the semaphore industry, right? There were these huge <laughs> semaphore towers uh, that, uh, that said, yeah, we don't want these we don't want this, this, this double to us wire. We don't want this, you know, this Moore's communication. Um, so you always have to fight the entrenched interest and in the conservatism on the bad side. But I, I think there is something 
useful about our conservative impulses in that, you know, there are new problems caused by new technologies, and we have to be aware of what those are so that we can learn to cope with them. Like, you know, the one thing that I think is completely true about our modern world, we have these, we have a spectacular array of tools for finding things out, and a spectacular array of tools for what I could, what I, what, what I refer to as ambient awareness, the ability to sort of generally keep on tabs and know what's going on in the minds of other people, uh, in the news cycle, in, 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 the, in the, the sort of intellectual thinkings and readings of other people. This is what all this you know, status update world of Twitter and Facebook is. It's just ambient paying attention to other people. So this is all to the good. We learn more than we ever could before. But it does have a challenge, and that's distraction, right? I mean, this stuff is very, it's incredibly interesting. It's more interesting than what I have to do for my job. And so everyone knows the problem of sort of getting sucked into that wonderful social hole of talking and reading and looking at things. Um, and, and distraction is a real problem that really needs to be dealt with. Um, I think it is, I think it's worth a trade-off. I think it is, I think we, I think we can learn how to deal with distraction. Um, it takes a lot of mind, it takes mindfulness and, and paying attention to your attention. It is worth the struggle, but, but you know, when people react to it in a negative way, they're not, they're not reacting against nothing. There really is a new challenge that emerges. There, there's a second challenge. I, I would argue that the distraction in many ways is a behavioral challenge, which I agree with you we, we can overcome through mindfulness and hard work. One of the other interesting habits of mind that you talk about that changes is this notion of recency and of immediacy and what that yes. does to the broader understanding of historical context. That's something that moves beyond behavior but really goes to, to a way of thinking. Yes, and it has civic dimensions too. So recency, recency is what psychologists call the fact that um, we tend to, 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 to pay a lot of attention to and think and, 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 and overstate the importance of what is happening here and now, right? So, um, so whatever is going on right now in front of us is the most crucial thing, and it kind of overshadows how much we think about the past and overshadows how much we plan for the future. Um, so recency is something that we've always sort of had to, you know, figure out cultural ways to fight. You know, the reason why we have universities, colleges, and education is to compel us to, you know, learn about and honor the past, and to learn how to plan for the future. Because, you know, most human, most big mistakes humans make are, are you could probably chalk up to failing, to failing to understand the lessons of the past and failing to prepare for the future. So recency is something we've always struggled with. Um, but, you know, it has it, it arguably gotten trickier now because we, have, uh, because we have these enhanced states of awareness, it's almost, because we have this almost ESP-like connection to the world around us, um, that can become something that, if we don't watch out, roots us even more in the here and the now. The way that you, you, know, you log on a Twitter, and it shows you, well, here's what someone said 30 seconds ago, and here's what someone said one minute ago. And it doesn't show you the really interesting thing that someone said a week, a month, a year, a decade, or a century ago. Um, now, to me, so, so the downside of recency is we live in an age with a lot of recency, um, and it can, it can, it can inhibit uh, our thinking if we don't watch out. The good part is this is, a, this is a design challenge. This is something that we can actually create tools you know, that, are, that are better at this because computers are really good at following simple rules better than humans. And you could, you could easily think of a version of Twitter or a version of Facebook that, 
that not only says, all right, here's what's happening now, but algorithmically finds the most interesting stuff that was talked about a year, a decade, or even in the archives of the New York Times 120 years ago that applies to exactly what's going on today. Like we could really, if we were to have some real fun, roll up our sleeves and build some amazing tools, we can have some tools that, that, that make the, the, the lessons of the past completely alive to us on a daily basis um, by using the, the powers of machines to scour through uh, um, records and to find stuff that, that we didn't even know was out there. So to me, this is the, this is the big design challenge of, of, of the next 10 years. And in many ways, it's analogous to the whole Dewey Decimal System and what we discussed before. You know, you might have gone into the library and just looked at the most recent things that were put on the shelf, and it might have exposed you to a whole bunch of different things that you might not have seen otherwise. But then later on, you could go and find exactly what you were looking for because you knew where it was. This, this is the same on, on, on analogous on a much grander and more technological scale. Sure. I mean, like, think about it. The way that they were organizing the books was based on recency. It was what was, most, what was bought right. most recently? Well, shove it at the top of the stack, right? And without the Dewey Decimal System, you know, you, were, you didn't really have any discovery mechanism. What the Dewey System did that was brilliant was to say, well, let's categorize books based on their common uh, subject matter. So suddenly this created the ability of the a person to walk into the section on statistics or the section on civil law or the section on cooking and, and, and in this wonderful serendipitous way encounter stuff that they didn't know that they were looking for. So that's a great win for the Dewey Decimal System. Um, but, it, uh, but, it, you know, but it itself had its own its own force. It meant that it was harder when you walked into that section to see what the new stuff was, what was the old stuff. There was no, there was no ranking of, um, of authority. You know, how, how did you know which of those books were now completely out of date and wrong? You know, I mean, the, these are the problems that libraries face. So over and over again, we've had to think, okay, so can we make a better tool that will, that will help us uh, uh, sort information, weigh it, uh, let us ponder it, and to me, the, the really great thing that we have above and beyond what they did with libraries, which is an enormous civic and intellectual benefit in the 19th century, is what we have now, is that software is, you know, at its best, extremely flexible. It can do really remarkable things to help us find and organize information. Um, and sometimes I think we're really just at the beginning of the curve. We're going to look back 20, 30 years at the way we're using the internet, it's going to look like we're driving around intellectually in a bunch of Model T Fords, you know? Like, certainly robust, powerful tools. You can, you can still drive a Model T today. They're very well built. Um, but not at all sophisticated uh, compared to what comes later. And that really is the counter-argument, I think, with respect to recency, that because we're going to have easier access to information that we're seeking that we're able that that it is more contextual for us, and therefore we're able to retain it longer, and then it goes up against or lays up against this kind of ESP awareness you were talking about before of the world around us. That it all creates a greater personal context in in the way cities do, as you talk about, and that really is the argument for a broader framework, and the argument I think against recency. Yeah, and the other thing I would say, uh, this is a really, and this is something I talk all, I hear all the time from people, is that it's also cultural, right? Like, I mean, you know, you know, if you if you are someone who is actually interested in the past, 
and learning lessons of the past, the Internet is just ridiculously good. Mm -hmm. Particularly, I would say, Google Books. They have gone back and scanned all these books and journals, and if it's before 1923, it's, it's out of copyright, so it, it, you, you can read everything. And as someone who's interested in history, as I am, particularly as it, as it helped me learn and understand what's going on with technology today, I find myself going in deep into Google Books all the time. Um, just, uh, uh, in fact, just last night I was reading uh, uh, <laughs> Motor Weekly, which is a magazine about driving from 1916, and it had a story about uh, how uh, rural women were becoming so addicted to driving that they were neglecting their hens, uh, and uh, and there was uh, there was not enough eggs to be f to be found in Illinois. And this was just delightful, being able to dive deeply into history and see these great scans and see the debates that were going on. So if you're if you're interested in history, you can the world is so open to you now in a way that it wasn't in the past. It's remarkable. But notice what I said. I began that statement sentence by saying, if you're someone who's interested in history, well, where did my interest in history come from? It came because I got a great education. I got a really good education. I had great teachers. I, I had an affordable uh, um, uh, college to go to that got me interested in this stuff. So in some respects, this is an age-old cultural uh, problem. How do we, how do we you know, create a world in which people are encouraged to care about the past and the future. Um, that is not a new challenge. We've always had that challenge. If we get, if we get better at it, uh, at educating uh, the citizens of tomorrow, they will go out into, the, into a world that is, that is just so rich and, and allows for such exploration for them to satisfy their interest in the past and the future um, that it, it, it's, 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 uh, incomparable to anything in the past. I mean, I'm old, and I'm 45, so I'm old enough to remember what it was like if I had an intellectual interest in 19, you know, uh, 91. Um, it would take me, you know, two days to find stuff that I could probably find in 15 minutes online. Um, and I, so I go, I go more, uh, more deeply and more comprehensively and in weirder and more serendipitous paths than ever before right now. And that really is the key point that education is adapting with the same tools. And just as we talk about digital natives that grew up with all of this information, we really need to think about it in the framework of those that know only this world. And it's not about the downsides of all of this. It's about adapting to all of this in ways that enhance the, the human potential. And really, you know, I would say the heroes of this story, of this adaptation, are actually really, uh, are really the librarians in schools across the country. So I, I, I wrote a whole chapter on education because I was very interested in, you know, how, what are the ways that teachers on the front lines in the public schools and don't have a lot of money, and they, so they got to do this with not much money, and, and they've got a lot of kids, you know, 30 kids per class, I wanted to know how are they finding useful ways that technology can broaden what they teach kids and help them teach them uh, in a deeper, richer, and more exciting way. And one of the things I didn't expect to find was that the people who were most ahead of the curve on this were actually the school librarians. Um, because they were not hemmed down by curriculum, because they didn't have to sort of march through a, a particular subject, and because of the historic interest they have in um, in new information environments, they're, and they're extremely these are really you know like talk about change agents you know librarians they, they have this reputation of being very fusty, uh, but they are they are the most dynamic 
people to leap on top of and kick the tires up and figure out the cool new things you can do with stuff. So over and over again, I would talk to librarians who were doing these incredibly clever things. They were getting kids to, um, to uh, teaching them how to be really skeptical online. They were showing them how they could, um, they, they could consult not just with documents online, but with live people. You know, here is how to use Twitter to be a civil courteous person and to ask a question and to get an answer of, uh, of an expert. You know, um, this is incredibly, there, there was just incredibly interesting stuff going on uh, with all the librarians that I encountered. And it gave me enormous uh, um, optimism for the future uh, if, uh, in fact, uh, I, I, it made, and it made me become a, an ever more diehard supporter of libraries as, as conduits for, um, for, for, uh, for how people learn to navigate the information world around us. The other side of this, we've been talking about it with respect to information, the other side is social interaction, how it's changed our interactions with each other, how it will continue to change those interactions, and arguably in a more positive, denser kind of way. Sure. Now, the thing, whenever you start talking about social behavior online, people tend to worry about us being more narcissistic, um, that, uh, that there's something about being online that, that makes you regard yourself too much. Um, I've, frankly, I've always been puzzled by this because, um, if anything, the, the complaint ought to be the opposite, that we're spending too much time uh, noticing what everyone else is doing. Because the thing that happens to social activity when it goes online is that it begins to trigger... Uh, in a very powerful way, what psychologists call ambient awareness. The, the ability for, of us to sort of pay attention to what is going on in other people's minds, uh, in their lives, in their thinking, by noticing little, little, little sort of bits of data. You know, in the old days, that was me sitting in a room with you. You know, you're reading a newspaper, I'm watching TV. We, so even if we're not talking, we know what's going on in each other's minds. You can tell by the by posture, reading, whether I'm engaged or whether I'm bored. I can tell by whether you're laughing or, or whether you're frowning what's going on in your mind while you watch TV. So this is ambient awareness in the real world. Well, in the online world, ambient awareness is me sending out little messages uh, all, you know, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, on whatever, saying, you know, here's something I read. Isn't this, isn't this funny? Or like, I wonder about this. Or me having you know, a conversation with someone. They, they post about, they post about uh, last night's sports game. We get into a conversation about, you know, uh, about an athlete, and you know, it goes on for 20 things. And you're sort of seeing and absorbing all of these little utterances I'm doing, and you're building a really strong mental picture of what's going on in Clive's mind. And, you know, over, if, if you're following me and I'm following you for months or years, we start to have this incredibly nuanced sense of the internal uh, cognitive mental uh, life of each other. This is what ambient awareness is, and it's incredibly rich. So to me, this is really funny. It's like, this is the opposite of, 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 uh, of narcissism. If anything, the danger is that I don't get any work done because it's too interesting to sort of to sort of intellectually see what's going on in the minds of people I care about, whether they're um, close friends or family or um, or, or interesting strangers. Uh, but in so as you can tell, probably I think this is a, a fantastic a fantastic trend. I've I've over and over again when I interview people for this book and I talk to hundreds of people, they would all point to this, um, this lightweight, persistent contact and the mental picture it gave them of other people as one of the most 
uh, useful and delightful things in the modern uh, world of social contact. And it also has the added advantage, arguably, of creating a more compassionate society that, that is a byproduct of that kind of understanding and awareness. This is this is precisely the argument of a couple books, actually. Um, uh, I mean, I, I, I took my lead from the arguments made by uh, scholars like uh, Stephen Pinker, mm-hmm. who's who did a very large study of um, of, of violence uh, of violence in society. He called it our better angels, and he right. basically argues that if you were to look at the likelihood of violence occurring over the last, you know, 10,000 years of human civilization, it goes down and down and down and down and down. Um, and that's because we got, one of the reasons was because we got better and better and better at communicating with each other. We had, we had towns and we had larger cities where you, you encountered more people. Then we had publications that let you know what was going on in those minds. Then we had novels that encouraged us to think about the internal lives of other people. And over and over again, more communication made us more sensitive to the lives and the idea that other people are individuals. Um, and, and in some respects, one of the things, when you look at the modern world, it, there's a paradox. It seems, it can emotionally feel like a horribly violent place. Um, and yet, statistically speaking, violence has gone down. What's happened is that we are more appalled by, and, and we notice more and pay more attention to the terrible things that can happen around the world. This is exactly what, what Pinker argues, is that the, um, you know, if we are distraught by the terrible things that ISIS is doing in, um, in the Middle East, or, or, the, or the incursions of, 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 uh, of civil rights in Ukraine, um, on the one hand, it can seem overwhelming and terrible, but this is a testament to the ability of communications tools to make us empathetic for what's going on in the world. And that, in fact, was the title of the other book, Jerry Rifkin's The Empathetic Civilization. He also says that communications tools were very, very significant in this. So I, I think that this is, this is exactly the point that's going on. We, um, we become, when, the more we become exposed to the, the inner lives of people, the, uh, the, the greater the chance we have uh, to understand what's going on in their world. It's, it's, not, it's not a be-all and end-all. There's still plenty of horrible... There, there's still like a good population. I think they're a minority, but they're unfortunately vocal of trolls online who, who are like, you know, frankly, just terrible people who actually delight in being nasty online. Um, and they can punch above their weight because they, they now have the ability to, to talk to a global audience, to go in and cause and cause havoc. Um, and this is, this is, a, this is a, you know, a, a new area of civics, you know, how to deal with those people, you know? So, but by and large, I think you are right. Uh, the, the argument of scholars who've looked at this is that um, there is a strong correlation between more communication and, and empathy. It's interesting that it's also happening at a particular time in history when, we, when there is this migration, continuing migration, towards cities, towards denser urban areas. And it's going to be interesting to see how the alignment of these two things continues to play out. Okay, yeah, yeah. Cities, cities were basically, cities were very much the original internet, right? Like, we, you went from living in a town of you know, 30 people uh, or 100 people to living in a city of 10,000 people. And it was very overwhelming. You had to learn how to navigate that very dense environment, learn how to live amongst people and be civil and polite in this dense environment. Yet there was enormous creative delights to be had there. People who live in cities are more creative. They come up with more ideas based on measures like patents and whatnot. So we got a great benefit once we learned how to cope with it. And I feel sometimes that that is exactly what's going on 
with the with the internet it's like we've moved to a new type of environment a cognitive urban environment and there are enormous value to be had in this environment if we learn how to live um, civilly and uh, and creatively within it Clive Thompson the book is smarter than you think how technology is changing our minds for the better it's just out from penguin Clive I thank you so much for spending time with us today I had a great time Jeff thank you very much thank you we'll take a break I'll be right back